Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, historians. My name is Eric Gruby, a visiting assistant professor in the Department of History at Boston College, and one of the hosts for New Books in German Studies. This podcast channel is part of the New Books Network, and today I'll be hosting Professor Tom Leakin. Tom Leakin received his PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1999. He is now a professor of history and faculty affiliate in the School of the Earth, Ocean, and Environment at the University of South Carolina. However, he is currently on leave as a residential fellow at the National Humanities Center in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. He is the author of Imagining the Nation in Nature, Landscape Preservation and German Identity, 1885 to 1945, out in 2004, and, along with Thomas Zeller, is a co-editor of Germany's Nature, Cultural Landscapes and Environmental History, out in 2005. His most recent monograph forms the basis of today's conversation, It's out now via Oxford University Press and is entitled Our Gigantic Zoo, A German Quest to Save the Serengeti. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you. I'm so delighted that you're interested in the book. And it's such a cool opportunity to tell people about this uh, this topic and how I came to it and why I think it's important. So thank you for having me. Well, fantastic. Well, I guess to um, to start us off, I just want to ask, how did you come to this topic? Well, as you, as you talked about in my uh, biography, I was really a, uh, started as a Germanist, <laughs> a straight up Germanist, and my interests have gotten a lot more uh, global over the past decade or so. Uh, but I came to this topic, I've, I uh, have always been interested in environmental affairs. And right after I left college, I actually worked for a while in environmental policy in Washington, D.C., and to be honest with you, I was trying to figure out a way to bring together my interest in history and my interest in the environment. And I was playing Frisbee on the Washington, D.C. Mall with a friend, Sam Truitt, who is now an environmental historian in New Mexico. And he told me about this new field, environmental history. <laughs> and so I guess since then, I've been trying to combine these in different kinds of ways over the course of my career. Uh, this particular book, I came to uh, fortuitously, and I did not plan to write it as I as I have. So I was originally interested in German tourism and the history of German tourism. Eric, you may know as somebody who has studied German history topics that Germans are known as the Reise Weltmeister, the world champions of travel. You can find them almost anywhere you go in the world. And so I really started as a book that was about global travel and Germans' role within it. And the, the subject of this book that we're going to be talking about, Bernhard Jimek and his conservation affairs, was really just one chapter of that original book. 
because he had promoted what was then Tanganyika, today's Tanzania, as a tourist destination. And then his story started to get more and more compelling, and it kept taking up more and more of that book. <laughs> and so I was a fellow here at the Humanities Center in 2009, 2010. And it was during that time that I said, it's time to just pivot to this story. So I really came to it through a process of kind of writing and starting another monograph and realizing that the kernel of what I really wanted to talk about was already there in, in, uh, in this story of the Serengeti and German's relationship to it. Well, that's marvelous. It's, it's great to hear when um, sort of something that, that seems sort of a small piece of something else actually kind of blossoms into um, a full story in its, its own right, right? To kind of keep following those breadcrumbs to see where exactly it'll lead you. I guess, it, it, but it took 10 years to write. <laughs> so, Well, that's, that means you're, you're doing, the, doing the hard work, right, of, of, of uncovering the, the real story here. Um, so I guess to sort of start us off with a kind of very kind of presentist question, so to speak, but to kind of guide us in here, um, in our modern environmentalist moment, right, we often hear about both the local and the global as co-constitutive, right, and mutually beneficial, right? There, there's this kind of this notion of thinking and acting conscientiously on the local level is is often posited as the way to live as a conscientious global citizen, right? Hence the the modern adage, right, think globally, act locally. This coupling of the local and the global has even led to the coining of the kind of awkward term, glocalization, right? Um, and indeed, in the wake of, I would guess, say the broader environmental and global terms, as you mentioned, uh, modern historiography also tends to reify this, this couplet. Um, but your book really turns this adage on its head by revealing a, a fundamental disconnect between globalism on the one hand and localism on the other. Could you walk us through that, that tension between the global and the local that you explain as both foundational and even, you know, potentially dangerous. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of thinking about the global and the local and how they're coupled within environmentalism, environmental discourse and so forth, um, think back to the 1970s. Uh, you weren't around yet, but I was. <laughs> and uh, we often saw people with T-shirts, uh, Earth Day T-shirts that said, you know, think, think globally, act locally. And it was this idea that environment could, in some ways, traverse some of the boundaries that people perceived were fracturing societies at the time. So whether that be by race, ethnicity, class, religion, gender, that in, in some sense, ecology as this new discipline could bridge those gaps and bring us together um, across nation states, of course, as well. And so thinking globally, acting locally was this idea that um, environmental problems were something we all shared, that somehow these were not, not uh, political in a traditional sense, and that we could, you know, by working in our local contexts, always uh, be bettering the global planet or the, or the global environment. And I think what I tried to do in this book is to think about the global not so much as just a place, or even, I guess you could use philosophically an ontology, but a claim to power. So if you think about conservationism, especially when we're talking about the subject of this book, the Serengeti, so Sub-Saharan Africa, in the 1960s and 1970s, you have this tremendous imbalance in power um, that's coming out of the period of decolonization. Um, and uh, so 
Westerners or Northerners, however we want to talk, a bit, talk about it, that are looking to landscapes and wildlife and uh, environmental problems in the global south, they're often um, looking at them, in my view, through a kind of skewed lens um, that leads them to make claims about global heritage. And in my case, I was looking at the global heritage embedded in the idea of wildlife, that somehow the large mammals of Africa belonged. In, in Jim, we'll talk about Bernard Jimmig in a moment, but he talked about them uh, belonging to everybody. Rhinos belong to everybody. But in a sense, that sidelined how local people, indigenous people, uh, people at the national level certainly might have thought about those animals, not only in terms of resources, but in terms of culture, religion, symbolism, and so forth. So I think there's there are parallels and fractures between the global and local that are uncomfortable. Um, and they come out of that imperial era. They traverse the period of decolonization, and they're still with us today. So, you know, if you think about it in that president, president, presentist sense that you just talked about, any of our accords about climate change right now. In Montreal recently in December, they were uh, trying to come up with accords for biodiversity. And we're always hitting upon the same problem. And that is uh, the sensibility that the global north has, in a sense, used and abused the environment um, globally for its own purposes. And yet that people in the global south are bearing the brunt of not only um, preserving and protecting wildlife and other species, but also now the, the adverse effects of climate change and biodiversity crises. So I think that's where I wanted to draw the reader's attention to the potential gaps, perils, risks, dangers, even violence of, of that coupling. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's sort of this important to not, you know, lose sight of how not just neocolonialism, but colonialism itself is, is, is so baked into the sort of the very um, fabric of this kind of environmentalist moment that was trying to, you know, in its good intentions, often kind of elided over that, that kind of powering dynamic that you, you so rightfully oh, for center sure. for us. Yeah, oh, for sure. And if you even think about uh, the UN uh, conference on the environment in Stockholm in 1972. This became just really evident <laughs> almost right away. Dear Gandhi says, you know, you've used up, I'm not quoting her directly, but, you know, you've used up your resources and yet you expect us to conserve lands, you know, that you, you deem to be biodiverse and so forth. And I think that, you know, she pointed her finger at this problem. And in some ways, I don't think we've resolved it. So I, I, I wanted this book uh, to address that through an angle that I felt comfortable with and that I felt I had some capacity to do. And that was like a Germanist-based historian looking outward and looking especially at Germany's role in this global moment um, of the kind of 50s, 60s, 1970s, um, and especially also the Cold War, of course, and the East German-West German rivalry on the front lines of that, that Cold War moment. So I thought it was a good opportunity to address it, maybe through a lens that hadn't been, hadn't been tackled before. Yeah, and and I guess sort of before we get into the the narrative um, major moments of of your book, I wonder if you could just sort of for our, our listeners, if you had to condense the argument of your book down to about two to three hard hitting sentences here, what 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 might those be? <laughs> That's a tough one. I think that I would say that you know, kind of it would it, I'd be in some ways. Um, reiterating a little bit of what I what I said in the last answer, but that is that, you know, I'll, I'll say Northerners, I like to use Northern rather than Western. I think that Northern environmentalists, as they, as they look to uh, the global South, 
as a place for, we often talk about it as being these biodiversity hotspots, let's say, um, that as we look to those landscapes, we have to recognize that they have long had histories of use um, that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, that are often erased from our stories and our myths about places like the Amazon or the Serengeti. And um, that in many ways, the planetary crisis that we find ourselves in is only going to, um, I don't even want to say be resolved, but be ameliorated by recognizing the kind of uh, practical knowledge, the everyday labor of people who um, depend on those landscapes for their livelihoods. And in some ways, they're the best stewards of those landscapes. And I think we've for too long thought of them as being scientific. And I'll even use the word backward, but in scare quotes because I find it offensive. But but in the 60s, that's definitely how they thought about it. So that mismatch between our northern slash global sensibility as a claim to power and the way that people who live with, especially in the case of my book, Wild Animals, live with wild animals day to day, have a, a repository of knowledge that we haven't even tapped and that we haven't really tried to understand. Well, yeah, speaking of this kind of notion of, of uh, Northerners' sensibilities, right, Sub- subjective uh, sensibilities here, right? Uh, let's, let's go ahead and dive into the, um, the narrative, right? So your, your book focuses on a, a pair of key historical agents here, right? The, the German father-son duo of Bernhard and Michael Jimek, right? To that end, your work masterfully uses the genre of biography, right, to reveal a much larger, much more complicated story of, you know, transcontinental, and as you said at the beginning, transnational historical processes, right? To start us off with the book's narrative and to orient our listeners, could you first introduce these two main characters, right? Who, who were um, Ben Hod and Michael? Well, it, you know, Eric, it's so interesting you're asking me this question because if we were in Germany, no one there wouldn't know who Bernhard and Michael Jimek are. And I think that that's, uh, in some ways, I, I, I felt like it was a really interesting idea of bringing this father-son pair to the attention of English-speaking and English-reading audiences. Uh, but they, Bernhard Jimek, let me start with him. So uh, Bernhard Jimek was best known for three things, really. Uh, he was director of the Frankfurt Zoo. Um, he attained that position in 1946, really, when the zoo was a bombed-out shell uh, after you know the bombing of Frankfurt during the during World War II, and he really not only rebuilt the zoo itself and reestablished its animal population, but he became a proponent for the expansion of protected areas and national parks, not just in Sub-Saharan Africa but across the world. Uh, secondly, he's really well known as uh, the host of a television series called A Place for Animals. And that ran all the way from 1956 to 1987, which is the same year he died. So it's over 30 years. It's the longest running TV show in German history. And it had the highest quotient of viewers that they had ever seen. And if you think about it, it's not just West Germany, it's East Germany's who are watching this, uh, Swiss uh, you know, German-speaking uh, Swiss citizens. You know, anybody who who could uh, who, who was German-speaking could enjoy it. And it's really akin to Marlon Perkins, um, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, David Attenborough, others, Jacques Cousteau, other figures that we know in other countries. And then thirdly, he's known for the film, the documentary film Serengeti Shall Not Die, um, Serengeti Darf nicht sterben, 
And that was a film that was uh, completed in 1959 and then won the Oscar in 1960, you know, for best documentary film. Um, so that was sort of, a, I think those three things sort of hinge his life, but you know, there's a lot that we can talk about and we'll get into about it, but just a sort of monumental figure in West German media, um, conservation, television, filmmaking, uh, and also, and some would argue, and this is what I thought was interesting about him, the, some call him the father of African conservation. Let's put that in scare quotes as well. Okay. And then Michael is his son. And Michael of, of Van Hunt's uh, children was the one who was most akin to his father and his love of animals. Um, Michael, as I discovered during the writing of my book, was quite a prolific filmmaker. So a lot of the footage in Serengeti Shall Not Die and in their earlier film, No Room for Wild Animals, which was uh, which came out in 1955, uh, he did a lot of the filming along with some school chums, Amon Gimbal and others, uh, and was quite, so, so really a great filmmaker in his own right, even though he was very, very young. Um, he first really became interested in animals uh, during trips that he took with his father to the Ivory Coast in 1951. And then he himself was going to write his dissertation about their Serengeti, their Serengeti adventures and their Serengeti research, and then become a wildlife ecologist in his own right. So he was, I think in some ways he was very pioneering um, as an ecologist, but his life was cut short because during the filming of Serengeti Shall Not Die, he died in a plane crash so in uh, the Jim X's we'll talk about had a very iconic airplane that they used for filming Serengeti Shall Not Die for the aerial, I should say the aerial photography and filmography. And uh, he died when his, that plane crashed with a griffin vulture and then um, hurled to, you know, to the, to the landscape below outside in Gorongoro Crater in uh, Northern Tanzania. And he died at 23. So very, very young. But in that time, I think he did a lot. And he also appeared sometimes with his father on TV. So, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of broad outlines of the two of them. I'd say, I think, like televisual, filmic, conservationist, um, and, um, and also this tragedy, this, this sort of tragedy of his death kind of, um, you know, hangs over the whole story of the Jim X and this quest to save the Serengeti. Because in some ways, uh, Jim X and others, mostly Northerners again, would see him as a martyr for wildlife. Yeah, this kind of, um, as you talk about the father having a sort of very paternalist kind of glance, but then also the son having this kind of, as you say, martyrdom kind of messianic quality to it, right? Um, especially with this notion of saving and, and you know, protecting, it sort of kind of bakes into that, that neo-colonial kind of parlance, right? Um, I guess, could we... Walk us a little bit more about Bernhard's role as a zookeeper, right? And the ways in which he saw wild animals and the possibilities for their conservation, right? How did this, uh, his, his professional role in this capacity, uh, shape his perspectives on African landscapes and communities as well? Yes, absolutely. You know, one thing I wanted to say is we, uh, we'll get more into uh, Germany's kind of colonial, post-colonial relationship to East Africa, and especially to Tanzania. But I think it's important to recognize when we're talking about Jim, he's born in 1909. So he's not, 
he's not a colonial officer. He's not somebody who has those kind of direct colonial ties. So kind of like my own writing of this book, he comes to his, he comes to assume the role of leader of the zoo and uh, his, his interest, excuse me, in wildlife biology, um, uh, circuitously, <laughs> you know, it's not a direct path. So, so I, I want to give you a little bit of background on that because then it helps you to understand the zoological society. So, so, you know, Chimek himself was trained as a veterinarian. Uh, and so his initial kind of uh, relationship to the, let's say the non-human world or the non-human animal world um, comes as a vet. Um, the mundane, uh, you know, the mundane effort to keep alive. And he was especially, it was livestock more than pets, more than domesticated pets. Um, and so he did his habilitation. It was originally rejected and then <laughs> eventually accepted um, on chicken anatomy. So there you go. And he was known during, so he's kind of coming into that time period. He gets his habilitation accepted in 1933. So think about that date, right on the brink of the Nazi seizure of power. And then becomes, during the Third Reich, he becomes the egg baron. <laughs> so he was trying to ascertain ways that they could, you know, uh, uh, kind of boost the production of eggs, the quality and the size and the number of eggs. Uh, you know, as we know, during the war, they had to think about food and food rationing and food supplies, or I should say during the Nazi period and then into the war, eventual war. Um, so he's the egg baron under um, uh, Richard Valtadare's Reich food estate. Um, and then he's also, you know, uh, 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 healing horses on the Eastern Front and also conducting experiments with them on the Eastern Front in Poland during the war. So that's part of his biography that I think is, it's not one that I investigated as much as Claudia Zavig, who wrote a, a, a more full-on biography about him, but it's an important backdrop to what we're going to talk about. So anyway, so he's, he's interested in mostly domesticated livestock, but he inherits some chimpanzees from the Berlin Zoo during the bombing raids. He and his wife, um, uh, you know, sort of take these chimpanzees in semi- pets and he begins to learn about wild animals in that context or wild I should say domesticated wild or zoo animals in that context and so then after the war he finds himself in Frankfurt and Walter Kolb is the mayor of Frankfurt at that time and kind of asks him if he could become the leader of the zoo based on the fact that he had already a lot of animal stories in publication did. He was already a popular writer. He was known as a veterinarian. He was known for these um, these kind of encounters with with chimpanzees at home um, that he had already written about in popular press. Um, but he didn't have a lot of experience with these wild animals directly. I mean, I mean, I'm talking, you know, sub-Saharan African, Asian, you know. Um, and by the time he comes to the zoo, of course, there's not many left. Um, so it's a ruin. Many of the animals are um, have been decimated during the war itself, but he takes on this role with a real verve, you know, um, to rebuild and also to reorient the mission of the zoo. And this is really important to understanding his eventual relationship to Africa, because what Jimek did is he sort of uh, the old-fashioned zoo was one where the animals were behind cages, you know, organized according to taxonomy. Know, like this is a, this species, you know, 
when it was very sort of caged and confined environment. Jimek embraced an alternative view of the role of zoos in which animals would have more room to roam. And so he actually eventually, even as he acquired new animals for the zoo, he reduced the number that was there before 19, let's say 1939, in order to create wider habitats. Uh, this was based on Hagenbeck's idea of the zoo from Hamburg, and that the animals would then feel more at home in this perspective. Um, uh, they would uh, be able to uh, potentially mate they would be available for visitors in a different kind of way, in a more open dioramic or you know, open landscape kind of way. And uh, he became, of course, then very interested in how do you recreate conditions in a zoo that would optimize animals' sense of home. And this is a really distinctive, we don't want to go too deep here, but a really distinctive German tradition of animal psychology and animal behavioral ecology that uh, was popular in the interwar era and is really popular in theory at theoretical circles today. But Jimek was very pioneering in thinking, okay, how do we make animals feel at home? And so going to sub-Saharan Africa on collecting trips was also a way to study those habitats abroad and to kind of figure out, well, what does an animal need to feel, to feel a sense of attachment to its place, even within a zoo, and therefore be healthy, happy, and hopefully reproduce. So, you know, that was a big part of that zoological mission that sort of ties Frankfurt to the globe. Yeah, this, this, it's, it's interesting to see the, the kind of, I don't know, attempt at, at both compassion, but also to kind of contextualize animals in the landscape rather than strictly, as you say, these kind of sterile, um, um, almost just like a like a walkthrough chart kind of natural history museum kind of sense, right? Um, and this this kind of quest for home, right, is an interesting sort of, um, it, it works on, on many levels, right, especially in this context. So you, you assert that there are the, the Jimmick's understandings and efforts to defend um, animals and, and wildlife, right, stemmed from a kind of plethora of anxieties, right, uh, regarding a... a series of processes, right? Um, from modernity to quote unquote Americanization, from decolonization and independence across the global South to perceptions of rapid urban and industrial quote unquote development, right? From emerging fields of conservation to longer understandings of animal husbandry and pastoralism, right? So how did their perceptions of this kind of constellation of larger scale processes shape their, their sense of urgency and kind of dire sense of, of mission? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great question. So, you know, Francisca Torma uses this term. Um, she, she wrote a really masterful master's thesis about the GEMEX uh, filmmaking. Uh, and uh, she talks about it as a, a projection screen for West German anxieties in the 1950s. And so we can talk about a lot of ways in which those anxieties, this is goes back to our theme of thinking, <laughs> what I say is, you know, uh, thinking locally, acting globally, because in a lot of ways, the GEMEX, um, well, let's just talk about Berenhard for now, because Michael's a little too young as we're in the early 50s, but then I think you can see this also in some of his work and his writings. Um, you know, the GEMEX are coming out of a context in which West Germany itself, and then it's sometimes hard for us to understand this in the United States, because we like to think that 
you know, we defeated the Nazis, divided up Germany and made it a, West Germany at least, and made it a upstanding democracy. But, but in many cases, um, West German citizens felt that they were under occupation, that they were being colonized by the allies. And as the 50s wore on, especially in more, let's say, conservative, and I, I don't mean that necessarily in a party political sense. Jim Mack thought of himself always as apolitical. Um, and this is really, you know, we'll get into <laughs> how apolitical conservation can be. But, but, but nonetheless, let's, let's call it like socially conservative anxieties about coca colonization. You know, Reinhold Wagenleiter's idea that the, you know, that, that, that cultural values that the Germans held dear, the idea of homeland or Heimat, the idea of a kind of bourgeois culture of appreciation of the arts and philosophy of a Christian humanist civilization were, in their view, under assault by America's very commodified, consumerist, they would use the word debased, frankly, culture. And so in some ways, you know, Jemek is coming from a context in which he's projecting that vision, that fear of colonization at home, of being occupied, <laughs> if you will, of being under assault culturally, of urbanizing rapidly. So you think about the, 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 the cities in Germany in the 1950s when modernism was at its height, mid-century modernism, you know, that the, the very face of cities is becoming modernized. And they associate a lot of that. It becomes like Americanization becomes kind of a bucket for a lot of those anxieties. So then how does that fit in with Africa? You know, this is the, it's a weird, it's a weird juxtaposition. And, and the way that I think that happened was they go to the Ivory Coast in, the, in 1951 at the invitation of, of a, actually a German-Jewish refugee who had gone there uh, um, uh, during the 1930s as, um, as the Nazi persecution of German Jews became more, more dangerous. Um, and he's invited there as, as a kind of, um, you, know, you know, to do some filming, do some collecting. And when he gets there, what he sees is an Africa that doesn't fit his myths of what he thought Africa should be, right? So it's an Africa in which he at least sees an explosion of population. So if you want to talk about what anxiety is kind of layered on to those Americanization ones, it's a Malthusian anxiety about overpopulation. Which I argue is really misguided. It's like it's like projecting way ahead of where many of these territories actually were, culturally, socially, but also even demographically in the fifties. And his sensibility is that the sort of um, let's say and again scare quotes around this primitive Af Africa that was all, a part of already the German imagination from the colonial era um, was dying. Um, and that people were becoming more Americanized in their tastes, that they themselves were being um, sort of subjected to this global hegemonic American culture. So instead of seeing this kind of wild and primitive Africa, he saw an Africa that was becoming more like West Germany. This is in his mind, right? Culturally, socially, ethically even. And so that's where a lot of this, you know, this kind of anxiety about impending Malthusian crisis comes to the fore. Um, and this idea that they are becoming, this is Africans are becoming like us. And for Jimek, that was a disaster. So it's this weird, Eric, it's this weird invitation in the 1950s where Jimek sees himself as not racist, not colonialist, um, that he, you know, embraces, at least in this very paternalist way, his so-called quote unquote black brothers as being just like Europeans. 
um, but it's an equality based on the idea that we're all degenerating. Like we as a globe and as a culture and as a society are degenerating. So it's an invitation and then an invitation that gets kind of pulled the rug out from under you because it means that you still need Western intervention to save animals from this impending Malthusian crisis. So that's, I think that's where I see this projection screen really working itself out and, and where, it, where it fits in with the Jimix quest that will later come with the Serengeti. Yeah, this, this, it's this, I don't know, almost like a, like a Rorschach test of, of his own anxieties from back home, coupled with a larger context of geopolitical power or lost power and, and America's kind of monumental rise, but then just kind of pushed off or projected, as you say, the screen of, of trying to kind of recapture this kind of colonial gaze of what Africa quote unquote should be or, or was once like or something. Oh, for sure. And you know, you have to think about this context too, because West Germany is in some ways in the fifties resuscitated as it becomes part of the European community. And we, we can't forget that the 1950s and people, Europeans at the time didn't see this. This was the last gas. It turns out to be the last real decade of colonial um, rule in many parts of Eastern Central Africa. And so, you know, he sees that he can, since West Germany, with he as this global representative, can resuscitate itself by joining with the Belgians and the French, especially, in a new kind of, if we will, civilizing mission. Um, the Germans call this Euro-Africa, right? This Euro-African kind of community that had gone way back to the to the 19th century as an ideal. So there's so much in this this story about the way in which he becomes a kind of globetrotter, um, a West German who, in a sense, offers a post-Hitler face to the world, if you will, a post-Hitler uh, 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 face of positivity or potential positivity and idea of saving animals um, in a period where West Germans were still under great suspicion. How, in that kind of notion of his interaction with other uh, European nationalities or even empires, right? How did his, so you, you talked about his, his previous trips to the Ivory Coast. Um, what about his, you talk about his, his trips to Congo, right? And could you talk a little bit about the kind of models for, or attempted models of wildlife conservation um, that he encountered there and how those would kind of, he would see both his anxieties, but also see models for kind of remedies that he might try to Reconstruct. Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think I think the Congo. I, I, I emphasize this in the book, and I think that this is emerging now in the, the work of Raf de Bond and others. Uh, he's a historian of science in the Netherlands. You know, really seeing that the the model for sub-Saharan African national parks was in, was really at least for the West Germans and some others was was Belgium. Like 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 the the hopes. For the hopes for a kind of global conservation effort focused on Sub-Saharan Africa was the Belgian Congo. It was not at that point Tanzania. It was not at that point. I would argue. I'm going to get probably some will be mad at me, but even Kenya. It was really the Belgian Congo, because uh, Victor von Strelin, who was the director of the Natural History Museum in the Brus- in, in Brussels, had sort of uh, helped to create this kind of green necklace of parks, uh, Albert National Park, named after the, um, the, the, the Belgian uh, king, later becomes Virunga, 
um, and others that were the models for conservation in the world. And, and the thing about it, Eric, that I would would say about them that was like different from Yellowstone or Yosemite is that they were really strict scientific reserves. You had to have a permit to visit them at all. They weren't yet seen so much as tourist destinations in the way that they would become in the 60s uh, or, you know, in the way people thought about national parks in the 60s. Um, and so, you know, this idea of this strict idea, like the only way to save animals from the Malthusian tide of overpopulation was to create these absolutely cordoned off sanctuaries. And so the Belgian, uh, the Belgian example really is the one that, that Jim Mick carries with him. And as I said, he made a film called No Room for Wild Animals. Um, he was based on travels in 54, 55. That was much more about these Malthusian, theme, Mal, uh, Malthusian themes of overpopulation, urbanization, and so forth. So that becomes his model of the strict reserve. Um, of course, <laughs> you know, we get, you know, a lot of that was an erasure of the really horrible and, and, and uh, tragic history of the Congo. Um, it's, it's depopulation and under um, King Leopold II and the sort of horrible, uh, horrible enslavement of people for the rubber industry. I mean, all that's kind of erased, you know, as part of this vision of these, 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 these uh, pristine national parks. But that's really where he focuses his attention. And I would say what's important for the Serengeti story later is his encounter with the Batwa. Um, I don't really like to use the other word, but we, this is sometimes the scare quotes, pygmies, it's a derogatory word. So I, I don't, I don't want to refer to it as Batwa speaking peoples who uh, inhabited many of these areas. And, and um, the Jimex were really fixated on these as model indigenous people, that they were hunter gatherers and in harmony with nature rather than destroying it, and that they were becoming corrupted as well was part of the theme of that movie. Um, completely misses that they are forest specialists who had managed these areas in conjunction with other peoples in that area for centuries. But, but nonetheless, that is where, really where that model comes from, of the Belgian Congo as a strict, strict scientific preserve. Yeah, they kind of, it's, it's this, I don't know, this hypertension between like needing it nature to be hermetically sealed off, but all of the maintenance that would need to go into just accomplishing that would require so much, you know, like it's this, it's this fascinating um, conundrum, right? So I guess drawing on his, his narrative up to this point, right. And his, his kind of personal story, let's kind of pivot towards the actual, the Serengeti itself. Right. So could you give our, our listeners a bit of background about um, this space, its inhabitants, its history, uh, why why this area was so deemed so vitally important, especially to the Jimmicks and their their German audiences, right? What 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 was kind of the the background here? Yeah, no, I'd be glad to talk about the Serengeti. So during the filming of No Room for Wild Animals, they actually did get outside the Belgian Congo into what was then called Tanganyika and other parts at that time of British-controlled East Africa. So they were aware of the controversy surrounding Serengeti National Park from that filming. But again, it, I would argue that it wasn't there initially going to be their focus. But there's a lot of dramatic changes going on in the late 1950s, early 1960s that, that really pivot their attention toward the Serengeti as a place for study and documentation and also for claims of the world heritage of wildlife. So, so for one, um, the most obvious probably is in 1960, decolonization in the Belgian Congo 
happens much faster than anyone had anticipated, and it turns violent um, very quickly. Uh, we could go in deep into that history, but that has a lot to do with uh, Cold War conflicts between the U.S. and USSR over the Congo's uranium stores, and you know that's a tragic history that's still with us, a mineral-rich territory that's often sort of um, riven by conflict from outside sources. Um, but that, that the, the Congo ends up in a, in a civil war. I won't go into those details because we're a little short on time. But, but uh, that means that that kind of world heritage site, that world sanctuary um, is, 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 is quickly lost, right? Uh, and, um, and so that anxiety about what would happen to animals under black majority rule or African majority rule was really on the minds of people as we get into the late 1950s. And the Serengeti National Park, I think, in some ways, crystallized people's anxieties about how, how people in these parts of Central and East Africa would deal with wildlife populations that they would inherit from the former colonial powers. So one of the things they have to keep in mind is that places that are we now deem to be pristine sanctuaries of animal life, like the Serengeti or like the Runga, were once game reserves set aside for uh, British big game hunters. Um, uh, they were places that were were um, local people. So in the case of the Serengeti, Ikoma, Ikuzu, uh, Nata, uh, Sukuma, and others. And of course, we'll talk about the Maasai in more detail, but would be excluded from their use um, in order to create a kind of pristine sanctuary where animals could kind of repopulate and those who could afford licenses could hunt. So they were already areas of exclusion back to the colonial era. Um, and in 1933, during the, in the London Convention, um, the, the, it was decided that the goal of a national park, in addition to sort of protecting animals from overhunting, should also be places that should protect the habitat. And even the habitat of migrating species like the iconic wildebeest of Serengeti. So, so what draws their attention to the Serengeti is these great migrations of wildebeest that they believe are the last on earth, that they describe as akin to the ones that used to thunder across the North American plains with the bison, um, but had been, of course, destroyed everywhere else but this one corner of East Africa. So there's that like kind of, um, you know, that urgency about this last population of, of, of wild animals that migrate. This convention in 1933 from the imperial era that's carried over into the post-colonial era of the idea of a national park isn't just to prevent overhunting, but it's actually to protect habitat. So this is a more ecosystemic understanding of how animals um, and people should interact. But most importantly, the Serengeti was a test case for the role of indigenous people and local people inside of national parks or their relationship to these emerging national parks, right? So in the, back to the Belgian Congo for a moment, the Batwa who, who inhabited uh, Virunga, Albert National Park, um, the Jimek saw them as ideal. They're hunter-gatherers. They believed erroneously in a sense that they were just, you know, sort of harmoniously living off the land in these, in these parks. But the British, when they created Serengeti National Park, um, the original charter is 1948, the actual uh, frontiers are created in 1951. They originally envisioned that Maasai, so these are pastoralist peoples that, uh, inhabit that inhabited that area for centuries before European Europeans penetrated the interior of East Africa, um, that they, the original idea was that they could remain 
inside of Serengeti National Park and others that were being created across uh, Kenya, um, Tanganyika and Uganda, the British controlled parts of East Africa, pastoralists, according to sort of the myths um, that they believed about them, don't generally hunt. They live off of milk, blood products, and other products from animals. Um, and therefore, they were deemed to be compatible with wildlife, um, that their pastoralist ways of herding their, especially their cattle, but other small livestock like, like uh, goats and sheep, that they, they could be somehow compatible with, the, with these migrating uh, wild wildebeest and zebra and other animals. Um, and so, so, so the idea is that they could stay, essentially. Um, hopefully, in the British believe some would be um, convinced to leave, uh, but that they're in the sense that they wanted it still to have a certain kind of features of primitiveness, but nonetheless, that they, if they were there when it was created in 1951, they could stay. Um, but the British, over the course of the 1950s, had become very concerned about pastoralist inhabitation of this area, which traditionally had always included burning in order to encourage grass for their and forage for cattle. Um, which sometimes used water holes, and the British thought they were competing with uh, the wild animals for water holes. But Eric, what I would emphasize is they were more and more thinking about the tourist potential of the Serengeti, of Savo, of Amboseli, of all these game reserves slash becoming national parks. And in a sense, the Maasai and other pastoralists begin to be seen as somehow in the way of that mission, that their traditional use and um, uh, uh, sort of extensive grazing of these areas was somehow on a collision course with the tourist potential of these areas. And so there was a conflict over whether they could stay and the British had essentially decided to divide up Ser the existing Serengeti National Park and offer a portion of it that was a, 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 the highland area, an ancient caldera called the Ngorongoro Crater and the highlands around it. It's a highland, well-watered mountainous area that that would be a permanent Maasai homeland. And so they would shore off the existing parts of the park. Um, they wanted to add a little bit to it so it wouldn't be completely divided. Uh, but the Jimex thought this was an affront to the national park ideal. And so this, this, this conflict between indigenous people, wild animals, and global conservation really comes to a head in the Serengeti. And that's why they focus on it. I know that was a bit long-winded, I apologize, but it's a, it's a complex story of late, late, late empire and an emerging global conservationist elite that are, that are fixated on the Serengeti. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, it was, it was great. It was, it's this, the anxiety over the park being bifurcated by these, these British kind of policymakers doing what they usually do of drawing lines on a map, right? Um, that sparks this, this, I guess, fear from both the, the German father-son duo, but also, I mean, as you say, it, it, it has very real, very tragic consequences as well for the Maasai, right? So your, your chapter on the Maasai peoples is, is wonderful. It's brilliant. So I wonder if you could, if you've done some good background now about their kind of pastoralism, um, but what's, what sort of happens, right, when the park is eventually split right um what's what were sort of the also kind of competing debates about this you've, you've mentioned as well this western or you said northern debates over what constitutes sort of authentic indigeneity right uh with kind of differing kind of contested discourses over over who or what culture gets to kind of claim a a um 
true sense of of indigeneity that seem as somehow kind of harmonious with what is seen as quote unquote natural. Right? Yeah, indeed. No, it's, it's it's a great question, Eric. I mean, I mean, first let what we have to do is step back a little bit and say that the Jimmicks were trying to prevent that decision. So, you know, the British had kind of put it on the table in 1956 because there was just so much conflict in that area. You know, as you're, they begin to see by the mid 1950s that decolonization is going to accelerate more quickly than they thought. I mean, it was still, believe it or not, some of the papers at that time are still talking like 1970s, 1980s, you know? So, so, so they're, they're trying to create a, a, a solution. I mean, they actually use the term final solution, which is just horrifying. A final solution to this idea of how to accommodate indigenous and local people within this growing network of national parks and protected areas, right? And so the, the, this, this was a compromise that the British had, had come to, essentially, that, you, you know, um, and it was conflicts on the ground, Eric. It was conflicts over trying to enforce boundaries and then having local people, you know, b- blow past these boundaries and graze their cattle anyway or set fires or, you know, you're putting lines on a map in, in places that are necessary for people's livelihoods because pastoralism requires a lot of land. Um, you have to move cattle during the dry season into well-watered highlands, and you have to move them during wetter seasons in East Africa back to the plains where they can uh, consume grasses. And they're in some ways following in the footsteps of wild animals like zebra and wildebeest, which are also grazers. And there's a lot of interactions that happen in that context. There's diseases, but there's also um, co what some people call co-grazing regimes <laughs> that exist there. So, But, the, but in any event, the, the, the British, in a sense, recognized over time that in Gorongoro Crater, these highland areas were the Maasai homeland. And it was promised to them as if you evacuate the central Serengeti Plains, so the areas that were generally dry during the dry seasons, um, and that were going to be the heartland of this new park, this refashioned park, um, that if you would evacuate those areas, you would have a permanent place. And so what the Gemex wanted to do was actually prevent that plan from taking place. And they, what they wanted to show was that um, in some ways they came in with certain biases about the scientific study that they were conducting by aerial, uh, aerial uh, uh, means um, about where the animal, how many um, animals were left, where the animals migrated, back to that 1933 ideal of habitat, right? And then what was the relationship between the vegetation and the types of animals in different areas at different times of the year. It's a monumental task. It's still one that people don't fully understand. I mean, there's been a ton of research over the years, but these questions are still with us, you know? Um, and so, but, but they were trying to make a kind of first step and they had the money and the means to do so. You know, the British were, were in a sense, you know, still kind of in, a, in financial straits after World War II, the, these, this West, West German pair with their money from previous films with donations from people who watch their television program. The Frankfurt Zoological Society is set up in that context. Um, they have some money and they originally said, we're just going to buy land outright. <laughs> and, and then Peter Malloy, who's the Serengeti National Park Director, says, you know, wait a minute, I don't think that would be so, so, uh, so welcome, but why don't you do this study to show us where we might put these boundaries in a more 
in a more um, ecological way, right? And so they're trying to prevent this division from happening, Eric. And they don't succeed, actually, ultimately. They do a lot of work and Michael dies. And uh, you can imagine Bernhard was incredibly bitter and crestfallen, right? Because of the, the death of his son during this, this, uh, this, this giant survey of the area. So, um, but nonetheless, that was the idea, like to sort of show that these animal migrations could not be contained within the new boundaries for the park, that many of the wild animals stayed in the Ngorongoro crater and that they would compete with the Maasai for grazing, uh, the Maasai grazing their cattle, their Zebu cattle for, for these same lands. And so that, that they projected that there was going to be a collision course and that this idea of, a, let's call it a mixed use area where they could, the Maasai could graze their cattle wild animals could still live. That's still how it is today, although it's certainly under threat, um, that, that, was in, that, that that experiment in mixed use could not survive. And so the idea of Serengeti Shall Not Die as a book and as a film was in some ways to lay claim to the animals as global heritage and to prevent this very accommodation to indigenous people. Um, so I hope I answered your question. I'm, I, if, I, if I didn't, um, we can come back to that to, to, to a little bit more detail there. But that's, that's what it, they were really trying to prevent that division rather than, um, rather than follow upon it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, this um, again, this, this notion of their own anxiety over, over a, an affront, what's seen as an affront to this, this, this what they imagine is this pristine environment. Well, right? also think about it. Um, they're worried that this will be a domino effect. Ah, uh, right? uh-huh. so they're, mm-hmm. they're a precedent, right? yeah. Because you're, you, you know, these are these 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 decisions are being made by late colonial officials, right? They're in the British Empire. Some of them see the writing on the wall. Some of them are are much more sympathetic to local people uh, than than global conservationists are, uh, and so. You know, the, the, the GMX are coming in and they're thinking, wait, wait a minute, if we share off this territory for, let's call it mixed use, this could happen across sub-Saharan Africa. And so these sanctuaries would no longer be these kind of uh, pristine, you know, giant, the title of my book is Giant Zoo, our gigantic zoo, right? That's what they called the Ngorongoro Crater. So these gigantic zoos, these open-air zoos would be threatened forever. Um, you know, to my mind, this was misguided um, in, in so many ways. But, but nonetheless, if you think about it that way, that this, this new global conservationist network is worried, oh my goodness, this is going to ripple across. We, we, this has to be our last stand in, in Tanzania. Or, I'm sorry, in Tanganyika at that time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but, but that, that actually pivots perfectly to our, to our next question, right, about the actual, you've talked about kind of decolonization as this impending horizon, right? But, but it very much becomes real, as you said, oftentimes sooner than many were imagining, right? Um, what impacts did kind of Tanzanian independence, um, I guess I should say decolonization and subsequent independence have on this entire situation? What sort of, I guess, how did the colonial dynamics sort of change at that point, but also in many ways, as you show, very much continue onward? Yeah. Well, um, one thing I should say in, in kind of answering this question and also the previous one about the Serengeti, you know, I... I it, the GMX story really builds on work that's been done. I mean, I, I, I'm coming to the, I could not have done this topic without people like Roderick Newman, without Dorothy Hodgson, without Jan Bender Shetler. There's, there's just this, a number of, of, of Africanists who have written about the Serengeti 
and about this landscape. And so I'm totally in their debt. And I, I have to acknowledge that because what I tried to do was, was to try to synthesize, to, to, to present the material in a different kind of way. And then to sort of ask this weird question is, how did this German guy become the father of the Serengeti? You know, and so I think in answering your question about these these this this moment of decolonization and then post-colonial the post-colonial era, what 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 I am surprised by is the incredible continuity between you know the late colonial idea of the wildlife sanctuary and the post-colonial one, and that was probably something that certainly local people did not expect. Because many of the, not just the national parks themselves, which we talked about were once the core of them, at least territorially, were game reserves that excluded Africans or tried to, um, not always successfully, in terms of the game scouts and wardens assigned to those areas, became more militarized, by the way, in the 60s. But, um, but, but you know, what, what the hope was that decolonization would bring land distribution, redistribution, right? And that a lot of the measures that the British colonial governments had undertaken in the name of conservation, cattle dipping to prevent East Coast fever, um, uh, uh, trypanosomiasis uh, measures that separated, you know, tried to strictly segregate people from wild animals in order to prevent the transmission of what's called sleeping sickness from wild animals to cattle and another variant to people. You know, all these measures, they thought, wow, this is going to be the end of that. <laughs> And then what they find is that the government that assumes power under a very charismatic leader named Julius Nyerere, who leads TANU, which was the independence movement and what was then Tanganyika, um, uh, becomes the first prime minister of the first territory of British East Africa to become independent, which was rather unexpected, uh, Tanganyika in 1961. What we see happening is that soon thereafter, in some ways, Nereri repeats many and, in, and indeed expands the number of national parks rather than curtails them, at least in this, you know, during the course of the 60s and 70s. And we ask ourselves why, and I think that's where the Jim X story really picks up in interesting ways, right? Because uh, they fail, in a sense, the, the pair fails to prevent the division of the Serengeti. But I think Bernhard, of course, is the only one still alive at that point, 1961. Where he succeeds is in convincing Nereri, and he's not alone. It's Prince Banhart of the World Wildlife Fund, and you know there's others involved. But he's a really prime agent in in, in convincing Nereri to expand national parks, and he embraces finally, unlike that old Belgium model, the idea of tourism. Tourism is a generator of development, really, and that national parks, that the wildlife are a, in some sense an untapped resource for a newly independent state to 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 make money and to develop in ways that the British had never succeeded in doing so. So it's a, it's a story of continuity that is surprising when you look at it, maybe from the lens of 1957, but maybe we shouldn't be surprised as, as well. Nereri's British educated. He's uh, schooled in Fabian socialism. Um, he's somebody who, want, who believed in an idea of African socialism, uh, but one that had um, many ideas, many um, of the same colonialist ideas about Maasai, Ikoma, other other local peoples about their need the need to bring develop the development mission to them. Yeah, and I think it's um, I mean it's sort of in reading your book, see this into which this this neo colonial neo imperialist moment really isn't even that neo, right? It just seems like sort of a a a um, 
continuation of of these these a logical in fact continuation i mean not not that it was good but a logical continuation uh, or i guess you say logical outgrowth of these long standing um power dynamics that were you know centuries old right and or at least i should say decades old if not yeah. going back a little yeah, bit yeah for earlier. sure and you know, you know the other thing too is to consider that um, you know the the the, the nation state so so tanganyika we should tell the listeners you know tanganyika is this territory that Got to go through the phases here. So there's a German 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 imperial presence in this area of the main the mainland area of what becomes Tanganyika and Burundi and Rwanda today are controlled by German you know Germany for its short colonial period 1885 to 19, 1918 roughly. Then they lose their colonies at Versailles in World War II, and the British take over what's Tanganyika. And Tanganyika is considered the poor sister of the three territories. It's the least let's use developed in square, scare quotes here, just in terms of road infrastructure and so forth. Um, uh, but it has, uh, in some ways, it has this you know, model political movement. Um, it, it achieves independence with relatively little violence, especially when we look at Congo and even Kenya. Um, and it's a multi-ethnic uh, nation that's created. Um, it, there's a lot of hopes and aspirations placed on Tanganyika. And yet, for local people, these hopes and aspirations are somehow and in some ways um, deferred. Uh, Jeff Schauer, who's a historian of this era, calls it Uhuru de- deferred, you know, liberation, emancipation deferred, because the Nurarian and his cohort of, of kind of so, uh, call them social democrats, at least initially, maybe, uh, um, that, they, that they, uh, they, they, they believe that they must bring development to these so-called backward areas. Right, and they believe that they're marginal in terms of their economic potential, and so so that's where that continuity comes in. Is this like developmentalist thinking, this uh, inability to see local people as the stewards of the very wildlife resources that Europeans mythologized for so long? So I guess yeah, moving moving closer to the um, we sort of started a conversation with kind of a more presentist moment, and I guess kind of moving us back in that direction. Um, you assert that this this episode of 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 conservation right marked both an attempted reckoning with the Nazi past on the one hand, and yet sort of on the other hand a a complete and utter failure to reckon with the colonial past, not just German colonial past, but also British colonial past, just colonialism more broadly, right? A failure to to reckon with that kind of power dynamic, right? Have you seen any reckoning with that longer colonial past by like today in, in 2023? Or do you think it's still sort of this long legacy of colonialism that is still kind of predominant? Just kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we always need to be cautious because this is a story of domination and this is a story of neocolonialism, but we'd also always want to add that Maasai... Coleman and others are always trying to use whatever resources they can rhetorically, politically, ecologically to push back against this, this, the, you know, this kind of uh, this, this global co- uh, coterie as well as this nationalist, you know, nationalist group. So, so you know, that would be a story for another time. But you know, always want to be careful in terms of thinking about this. But, but in terms of that that colonial legacy, I mean, you think back to, as I said, Jim Mack himself was not a colonial officer, but when we get to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, uh, as decolonization is proceeding in Britain and France, and then, of course, Belgium, um, uh, 
historians would argue, and I think correctly, that that in, although they don't deal with decolonization always very well, look at France. <laughs> um, nonetheless, they're confronted with the with that loss of empire, right? And the one argument is that Germans, and this is, um, you know, Sarah Lennox. Uh, and her colleagues who wrote Imperialist Imagination, um, I believe it's the late 90s, might have that wrong when the book was published, but there was this idea that the Germans, in a sense, sidelined the colonial past because they're dealing with the Holocaust. Like in some ways, the colonial past gets uh, gets kind of sidelined or pushed to the side that coming to terms happens if it happens at all later. And I, I agree with that thesis. And so... Um, I think that allows Jim, like in some ways that allows this to happen in the ways that it does, right? That West Germany can be, he can present himself as apolitical and West Germany can see itself as doing, you know, kind of a, you know, a Noah-like work in this area, but without having to grapple with the game reserves and the forest reserves that were created under German colonialism. So if you ask me, you know, how is that working itself out today? I would say that the the same same unfortunate false assumptions. I'm going to use pastoralists here, but I you know we could talk about others. But about uh, sort of Maasai life ways and livelihoods and the ways that pastoralism is in many cases very sustainable in terms of um, 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 its compatibility with wildlife in, in terms of grazing regimes. Not everywhere, not always. There are examples of overgrazing. But nonetheless, for the most part, a much more sustainable, certainly than most Western development ways of using that landscape. Um, and also um, that this was a homeland that was promised uh, to the Messiah. And then sort of just if you go north, uh, northeast of, of the Serengeti, so an area called Loleondo, it's a, a formerly a game controlled area. So less strict protectionist measures than a national park. But what that area is being subjected to is a different kind of land grab than we saw with colonialism or with the national park. And that is, on the one hand, ecotourism, and on the other hand, a very large chunk of land being leased to a Saudi Arabian-based company as kind of a hunting reserve. And that has even curtailed more the land available for pastoralism that was already um, you know, um, decimated during the colonial era curtailed even more because of national parks and then diminished further with these new, let's call them neoliberal strategies of, of wildlife resource uh, productivity. And so I guess it, unless you want to say that these new market examples are different from statist or colonial ones, but it's still the same dynamic, I think, that uh, local people are not assumed to be good stewards of the environment, that their life ways are are sidelined and and Eric, it, it's not just about um, want, maybe we'll talk about environmental sovereignty. But it's not just the sense of homeland. It's not just the sense of identity. It's not just this the the, the dependency for traditional or semi-traditional life ways that are at stake with this. I think, but it's also um, you know it's also the ways that pastoralism is so important to the to the food ways of that region. I think we really underestimate. Um, the extent to which pastoralists do such important work supplying milk products and meat products, often though outside of maybe more uh, more northern recognized markets, and that's still the, the case today. You're talking about increasing food precarity in the name of wildlife protection, and that's really a problem. And so I, I think if you look to that area in particular, um, 
you'll see a lot of continuity to the story we've already been talking about. Well, yeah, I guess I've one kind of massive wrap up question here. Um, so we started again, our, our conversation about the narrative, right. By, by discussing how this, this book masterfully stitches together all kinds of threads around the, the central characters of the Jimmix, right. These threads include, you know, modernity and its discontents, both real and imagined um, the legacies of Nazism in world war II, the legacies of imperialism in sub-Saharan Africa, the emergence of neocolonialism alongside decolonization and independence movements, um, Cold War diplomacy, questions of indigeneity and indigenous experiences, transnational conservation movements and mass society consumption. Right? It's a real, it's a real uh, masterwork here, right? Plus, there's also this this interesting history of just tourism itself, right? So, with all of these kind of larger, significant themes here, what would you like to leave us with? Um, regarding these narrative threads. If you want basically if you want readers to have just a, a couple of take home points from your book regarding its significance and intervention, what what would those be? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that question. I think I think one of them let's let's say at a at a more like like geeky historian level <laughs> okay. for a moment. Um, I think that they show us that uh, there's a particularity about the about German globality or German globalism. Um, and the ways that it works itself out through environmentalism in particular and conservation. Um, Germans, you know, this may seem, if you know the history of East Africa, rather rather skewed, but they believe themselves to be like the better colonizers than the British because they were more in tune with the land uh, and the peoples even. Uh, and so when Jimmick comes back in the 60s, although he himself doesn't necessarily tout always so directly these kind of colonial legacies, they're definitely an undercurrent of his work. So I think, I think for, for, for Germany itself, there's, a, there's this, this issue of thinking about the reckoning with that, with that colonial past and the ways that they decide to be global actors. Um, I am new to Twitter. I've only been on it for a year. But there was a recent tweet from the German embassy I, I think this encapsulates encapsulates it well, Eric. Um, there was a, a a a tweet that sort of talked about Nereri and Jimek as the fa- as the fathers of the Serengeti. Uh, oh, no, I said the fathers of the Serengeti ecosystem. I mean, that was such a misfire tweet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do you how can you be a father of an ecosystem? And and it certainly was an ecosystem that they didn't think was part of a human ecology, a human tapestry. So it was just a misfire, misfire. And I think that deeper reckoning still has to happen. But the second one, and and this has happened more in reflecting upon the publication of the book and its reception since then, um, that I've come to is being really careful about crisis narratives, being really careful about who wins and who loses and whose voices are included and not included when we talk about planetary emergency. And we are at that precipice right now, and I don't mean to minimize those. We are amidst a sixth great extinction event, anthropogenic cause, as well as, of course, the climate crisis. But nonetheless, many of the solutions we offer are eerily similar to what I saw in 1960 with the Malthusian crisis, that is, distrust local people, seize it out of their hands, come up with mostly technical and technocratic solutions, i.e. make wildlife a commodified resource, right? 
bring in uh, a tourist on you know, large airplanes. I mean, I'm just saying that, that we have to really, really scrutinize crisis as a framing for how we think about environmental stewardship because it can lead us astray or it can lead us to, to maybe erase possibilities that are right there in front of it, in front of us. Um, Ian Parker is a, a former game warden in Kenya, and he's still alive, and I'm conversing with him a lot about my new book. And um, he said to me, and I thought it was really great in an email, he's like, Tom, this was sitting right in front of us. This, this indigenous, the, the, the fact that, that uh, in his case, it was the Wata in Kenya who were um, stewards of elephants. He said, they're, they're a capacity to steward these animals and our relationship to them was sitting right in front of us and we just ignored it. So I just, I think that that's a good message for a bigger takeaway about the book. Okay. Well, um, kind of our, our final question is always here to MBN is what are your plans for your next project? So I am looking, I'm kind of at two, two projects I'm working on one and a half. <laughs> so the, I'll do the happy first. Uh, that's a book called uh, green Germany. The Local Roots of Global Sustainability. And that book is geared toward an advanced undergraduate audience. I've been teaching a lot in my other unit, the School of Earth, Ocean, and Environment. I've been teaching environmental studies. And I really wanted students who didn't have any historical background to understand some of the more hopeful stories of Germany's interventions. But those are more at home, Eric. <laughs> so things like green transition in cities, urban gardening, uh, saving tram networks in Frankfurt and, and, and Munich. And so it's a, uh, I'll be writing about half of it with, a, with my uh, colleague, Carol, uh, Carol Hogger at Bryn Mawr. And then my other book is tentatively titled Conservation by Slaughter. Uh, <laughs> it's, about, um, it's about African game ranching. So it, it, if you will, it's the, it's the history of wildlife management outside the traditional national park. And it encompasses a broader swath of sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm looking at this sort of conflict over humans, uh, non-humans, humans, humans <laughs> um, across different spaces and territories in East and, and to an extent Southern Africa. Um, as, we, as, as conservation began in the 70s to shift away from strict protection to market-based solutions. So I'm really interested in the origins of that kind of neoliberal approach to conservation of making animals pay for themselves, literally is the terminology. Um, and uh, the ways in which, especially food and the idea of hunger and the idea of a nutritional crisis, the world protein gap, shaped uh, Western conservationist sense of um, how animals could contribute toward that, uh, toward that, toward that, um, uh, that, that effort to, to pay for themselves. So there's sort of two projects that I'm working on now. Um, the first one will probably get done first. Well, marvelous. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been Tom Leekin talking about his book, Our Gigantic Zoo, A German Quest to Save the Serengeti, out with Oxford University Press. I highly recommend everyone go get a copy if you're interested in history, German history, uh, history of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, or anything related to the environment. It's, it's, it's really just a, a brilliant book. So thank you so much for taking your time to chat with us and uh, hope to chat with you again soon. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure.